So have you, have you ever had a thought or had someone ask you, how can a good God allow the righteous to suffer? How can a good God allow the righteous to suffer? Unfortunately, there are a lot of people today in the church that think by coming to faith in Christ, they're going to have a life of leisure. They're not going to be faced with trials. They're not going to have significant health issues. Um, and they're not going to face tribulation. And there are even many that might make an evangelistic appeal, either subtly hinting at that or even coming right out and saying that if you come to faith in Christ, he is going to deliver you from all the trials in this temporal world. The suffering of the saints, the tribulation that we're going to face in this life, the trials that we're going to have, and the apparent prosperity of the wicked are a frequent subject within the scriptures from the Old Testament throughout the New Testament. And if you've ever done a study of the book of Job, that is probably what would be a main theme of the book of Job is the suffering of the righteous. And that's the fundamental question that underlines Psalm 73 that we're going to take a look at today. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 73. This particular psalm's unique uh, contribution to the book of Psalms is that it deals with suffering not so much to defend God in God allowing or even bringing suffering, but really to help us define what is good from a biblical perspective. That question I posed at the beginning, how can a good God allow the righteous to suffer, actually reveals two fallacies in our thinking. The first one of those is the assumption that suffering is always bad or always evil, and that because of that, it's irreconcilable with a good God. And the second failure is a failure to understand that um, so far as the true child of God we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. So a failure to understand that suffering is not evil. Suffering is what we should expect, especially if we're going to live a life of righteousness. In answer to the problem of pain, Psalm 73 will force us to take a better look at God's definition of goodness. And if for no other reason, so we don't accuse God of not being good when he brings trials into our lives. So as good students of scripture, we should already know, we should already understand if we've studied the Bible well, that suffering is going to come our way and that God uses suffering and trials in our lives for his purposes. In fact, Jesus himself spoke to his disciples in John 16, saying that we would have suffering in this life. In John 16, verses 25 to 28 and verse 33, John records Jesus as saying, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from the Father. 
I came from the Father and have come into this world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And in verse 33, he ends that by saying, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So even as we face tribulation in this world, don't forget that Christ has already overcome the world. So it would be wrong for us to make the assumption that coming to faith in Christ would deliver us from any trials or tribulation. It's exactly the opposite. By coming to faith in Christ, we should expect that we're going to face trials and tribulation. So as we take a look at Psalm 73 this morning, we'll see that it's divided in two parts, almost equally. The first 15 verses, Ashva the psalmist describes or depicts a trial of his faith as he watches what is, in his perception, the apparent success of the wicked. And the last 13 verses describe the triumph of his faith as he turns from protest to praise, as he turns from doubt to declaration in a good God. So I'm going to read the first 15 verses of uh, Psalm 73, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Psalm 73, verses 1 to 15. A psalm of Ashva. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues, excuse me, strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's interesting that in the very first verse... Ashva, the, the psalmist's first statement is, is correct. He says in verse 1, Truly is God good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So in the very first verse, Ashva declares the truth on which his faith is initially founded. But also, that's the foundation of his trouble. He begins with the conclusion that God exists. He begins with the conclusion that God is good and that God is sovereign over his creation. But in another sense, those three very facts 
are what causes him to wonder if God is good, if God is sovereign over all of his creation, why do the righteous apparently suffer and the wicked apparently prosper? One commentator I read said this, it is as if Ashva is wondering if God exists, rewards the righteous, is all-powerful, and is in control of his creation, why do the wicked seem to be doing better than the righteous? Is that a valid question to ask? Think about that for a moment as we continue. What Ashva writes in verse 2 and verse 3 actually begin to show us where his thinking has gone awry. In verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He had almost stumbled, he had almost slipped because of his perception of how the righteous were not prospering while the wicked were prospering. In verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he points out two of his own problems in those first two verses. The first problem is theological, and the second problem is personal. The theological problem concerns his view of the apparent failure of God to keep his covenant with the nation of Israel. You know, Ashva was a uh, a Levite, and he served God as a Levite. And so in Deuteronomy at 27, 28, uh, God promised that he would bless the righteous and that he would curse the wicked. So Ashva's theological problem is he's not seeing God doing what he had promised. His second problem um, being personal is his struggle with the lifestyle of the wicked. Not necessarily that they are wicked, but their lifestyle. In, verse, in these two verses, what does he say about himself? Take a look at that and think about it for a moment. What does Ashva admit about himself in verses 2 and verse 3? <clears throat> he actually begins by describing his frame of mind and his heart as being very precarious. I almost stumbled. My feet almost slipped. Is a, is a description of, of a very precarious situation. He had almost lost his footing. His spiritual stability had been shaken by what he had seen. Again, not about the wickedness of the wicked, but about the prosperity of the wicked. It's almost, we could say, that he'd lost his grip on spiritual reality. He'd lost his grip on spiritual reality. Does he actually identify the cause of his precarious situation and his, his loss of a grip on spiritual reality. Look at, ver- look at the beginning of verse 3 and see if you can see where he actually describes what's wrong. He's envious. He admits that uh, he is envious of the wicked and how they had prospered. Again, he's not concerned about their sinfulness. He's concerned about their prosperity. Everything that he saw was colored or clouded by his own sinful attitude of envy. So he wasn't able to see what was really going on in his, in his envy. 
He should have been grieved by their sin. But he was actually consumed by greed out of sin in his own life. One commentator said that he was not distressed so much by the sin of the successful as he was by the success of the sinful. Think back to the prodigal son in the parable that Jesus told in Luke 15, starting in verse 28. The older brother, what was the older brother's reaction when the prodigal son returned? He was angry because this brother had gone out and lived a vile, sinful life, but the father took him back in and threw him a big banquet because he came back. The older brother is saying that what? My brother has enjoyed unrighteousness and sin while I've stayed home and been righteous and profited little. That's what Ashva is is likely thinking. What about us? Can we fall into that same trap? Can we become distraught over the wrong things? Or can we become righteously display righteous anger toward sin but for the wrong reason think about that we need to check our own hearts can we not fall into the same trap we need to be grieved by sin and not concerned by someone else's prosperity not concerned in displaying the same kind of envy that Ashva has David in Psalm 37 verse 1 says to us, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Can we benefit in any way from being envious of what somebody else has, especially someone that's gaining it by evil means? Even though these people may seem to prosper in this particular temporal life that we're living here today, we shouldn't look to that prosperity as a blessing. When we suffer, when we face a trial, we should look at that as a blessing. Because what's occurring when we are taken through a trial? What is God doing in our lives when he takes us through a trial? Say again? Refining. He is putting us through the refiner's fire. And what's the purpose of that? What is he striving to do in our lives, in my life, when I suffer? He's trying to mold me. He's in the process of molding me into the image of the sun as he takes me through the refiner's fire. So even though the wicked may seem to prosper in this life, Ashford does provide a pretty good description of them in verses 4 to 12, but his description is actually distorted. Skim through those real quick. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. Verse 6, pride is their necklace. Verse 5, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and they speak malice. His conclusion seems to be that, in, that all the wicked prosper that all the wicked prosper, and that all the prosperous were wicked. 
that the wicked prosper and everybody that is wicked prospers. However, not all the wicked are wealthy, are they? And not all those who prosper are wicked, are they? According to Jesus in uh, Matthew 7, verse 3 to 5, where he talks about the log and the speck, someone who has a sinful attitude, like Ash was displaying in the first part of this psalm, is in no place to try to evaluate someone else to see whether they are prospering rightly or suffering rightly. The way Jesus put it, those who have a log in their own eye are going to have trouble to see the speck of sawdust in their brother's eye. So check yourself first before you try to judge others is the point of that uh, passage. So from Ashva's viewpoint, the covenant blessing that God had promised were being poured out on who? The wicked. And the chastening that God had promised to be poured out on the wicked from Asha's viewpoint was being poured out on who? The righteous. <clears throat> In Asha's view, sinners were being blessed while saints were being cursed. It's as if God had turned his covenant upside down. The covenant, that he, the covenant promise that he made with the nation Israel had been turned upside down. As we take a a second look at verses 4 to 12 uh, and some more of the characteristics that Ashford describes of the wicked, he says about them in verse 4 and 5 that they live in constant well-being. In verse 6 to 9, he describes what he believes is their wickedness. And in verse 10 to 11, he says they appear to have widespread popularity. His definition of prosperity is almost entirely materialistic. He's looking at what they have in this life, not what they may have in the next life. They seem to live above the trials of this life. They were experienced the kind of prosperity that Ashva believed only the righteous should expect and should enjoy. What was wrong with his viewpoint? What was he seeing? What was he concentrating on? Was it temporal or was it eternal? All seen things. They're all temporal. They're here today, gone tomorrow. He was seeing their apparent material success, but he was not seeing their eternal condition and what was going to happen to them eternally. It doesn't appear that he believed material of prosperity was evil and something to be avoided, something to be shunned. He's not condemning material prosperity, but what he's doing is protesting against God's apparent choice to bless those who were wicked and to not prosper those who were righteous. The Old Testament frequently promised prosperity to the righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is full of that. But it also warned about divine judgment to those who, excuse me, who who ignored God's law. Based on these promises, Ashva had expected 
that he should have been the one and people like him should have been the one that were prospering materialistically. And those who were prospering should have been the ones that God had cursed. His envy is evident in his protest. In his initial response to his own suffering, it's like he's crying, why me, Lord? Why me? And his response to the apparent prosperity of the wicked, it's like he's complaining, why them? So it's, why me, Lord? Why am I suffering? And why them? Why are they prospering? I'm righteous. They're wicked. He seems to have nothing against uh, a life lived in luxury. The problem was he wanted to be in the driver's seat of that luxury. Rather than worrying about his ungodly neighbor and what he should be doing about or witnessing to his ungodly neighbor. He reasoned that if these well-to-do wicked didn't take their prosperity to be a sign of divine blessing, they must have assumed their success in life was evidence either that God didn't care or that God didn't know. Both in the Old and the New Testament, wealth is seen as a blessing. But when someone in the Old Testament or the New Testament is blessed with wealth, what does God expect them to do with that wealth? Use it for God's kingdom. Use it for God's work. Share it with others. The wealthy have, excuse me, an obligation to the less fortunate. However, these particular wealthy people had no compassion. They were callous. They were not content with what they had. But apparently they continually schemed to get more and more and more, no matter who they ran over in doing it. In verse 7 and 8, he says, Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. So they're continuing to figure out new ways to get the wealth that they had. And their pride wasn't merely reflected in their attitudes and action toward men around them. Their pride was also directed at God. And they actually were so bold that they openly blasphemed God. In verse 11 and 12, these wicked men and women say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. And that's essentially a, a summary of how Ashva is viewing these wicked people. They're so bold in their wickedness that they're blaspheming God. They were always at ease. They continued to prosper, even in their wickedness. And their prosperity even enticed others to follow them, as he says in verse 10. Therefore, his people, meaning Ashva's people, other Israelites, turned their back on them, meaning on other Israelites, And they followed these wicked people, finding no fault in them. What kind of reasoning is Ashva using throughout this? Is he using using human reasoning or godly reasoning? He's using human reasoning. Thinking almost like, if God is not blessing the righteous and cursing the wicked, the very thing God had promised in the Old Testament law then where was the benefit of being righteous? 
much like the older brother of the prodigal son. I've stayed home. Ash is saying, I've lived a righteous life. So what's the reason? Why should I work so hard to be righteous when God's not going to bless me? He's likely viewing it as contradictory to both God's covenant and even human common sense. As we read verses 13 to 15, it seems that he must have agonized over this in private. Fortunately, not sharing what was in his heart with those around him until he actually sought for the true answer. Because had he done that in his role, he could have caused others to follow him. In verse 13, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's speaking to God in that. So what do we know about Ashva? Anybody know anything about Ashva? Who he was, what he did? He was a Levite and he was a worship leader in the temple. He actually led one of the temple choirs. So in his role as a Levite and as um, somebody that led one of the temple choirs, he would have had an influence on those around him. And if you want to verify that, 1 Chronicles 15 and 1 Chronicles 25 explain the role of the Levite in the temple as, and particularly mentions Ashva two or three times in, in both of those passages in his role. He also wrote a few other psalms. I believe he wrote 73, uh, 74 and 75. Um, as a leader, to have doubted God's faithfulness and forsaken a godly life would have been a betrayal of his fellow Israelites. So at least he retained enough righteousness to keep his thoughts and his concern, his misunderstanding to himself until he sought for an answer. As a religious leader, he would not only have been responsible for his own sin, but he would also have have encouraged others to walk in the same steps he was walking. When he confessed of his sins, when he eventually confessed of his sins, he could aid his brothers. But when, when this would only tempt others, he agonized alone and kept his mouth shut. Something that he was actually wise in doing. For us, that helps us realize that our actions do affect those around us. Whether you're a leader in the church or just a believer that attends church, and comes to be fed, the things that you do have a profound impact on those around you. With that particular realization, we come to the second half of the psalm. And I'll read Psalm 73, verses 16 to 28. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But when I thought to understand this, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, There I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Ashva has a dramatic change of heart beginning in this passage in verse 16. Human reason had led him down a false road. Human reason had led him to a false impression of who God is and what God is doing and what God will do. It had caused him to doubt God's character. It had also caused him to doubt the fate of the wicked. Suddenly in verse 16, he has a new perspective. Complete change of attitude. Instead of protest, there's now praise. What happened? What changed his mind? What changed his heart more than his mind? What did he do? He went somewhere. He went into the sanctuary. And what did he do when he went to the sanctuary? He worshipped. When he went to God's house and he worshipped, he was changed. New heart attitude. A new mind to realize what God has promised is going to come to fruition. God is going to bless the righteous. God is going to curse the unrighteous. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God where I discerned their end. He entered the sanctuary of God to worship. Entering the sanctuary of God changed everything for him. His worship must have reminded him of his responsibility that he had remembered in verse 16. If he had spoken about the thoughts that he had, he may have caused others within the nation of Israel to stumble. What do you know about worship among the nation of Israel prior to the divided kingdom? What was it primarily made up of? Where did it occur? It was always a corporate gathering. It was always a corporate gathering. Um, Something done part of a larger community. Had he continued to adopt the attitudes he had earlier, he would have tempted others around him because of his role in that corporate worship to follow him down those steps. Such a sin in the life of a believer is not only an offense to God, but it's also an offense and a stumbling block to those around us. So whether you're a leader or whether you're just a fellow worshiper in God, you need to guard your heart. You need to guard what you say. You need to check your beliefs. You need to check your understanding and make sure you're viewing things right so that you don't lead someone astray. True worship should always remind us that we can't ignore our brothers and sisters in Christ and think that, oh, it's just my attitudes. The things I say or do only affect me. No, they don't. They affect everyone around you. 
we can't worship God while we offend others. We can't worship God while we offend others. In uh, Matthew 25, verse 23 to 24, Christ addressed this. He said that if you are on your way to offer your gifts at the altar, but you realize that your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave your gift. Go to your brother or sister in Christ and make it right. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So we need to deal with the relationships we have with each other in the church before we come before God and worship. Ashva's worship had dissolved into envy, but now his envy had dissolved into worship because he came to the house of God and he realized their ultimate destiny. He had concluded that the wicked prospered and the righteous suffered, but this was a decision that he'd made too hastily. This was a decision that he had considered before he considered who God really was and who God, what God had really promised. His conclusion had been reached on the basis of observations that were superficial and had no thought for eternal things. The fate of the wicked was viewed from a temporal perspective, not an eternal one, and his reasoning was based on human thinking and not on faith. After worshiping, after worshiping, he now sees the prosperity of the wicked to be passing, and they're the ones that are precarious, not him. If his footing was shaken, if his footing was shaky, the feet of the wicked even more so. Verse 18, he says, truly you set them in slippery places. So God has set the wicked in slippery places. You will make them fall to ruin. God will make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. In a moment's time, their prosperity is gone. Their prosperity will turn to peril and it will turn to punishment. For a time, God has chosen to delay that judgment. But once he is aroused, he will not. The despised and their success will be like a passing dream. For Ashva, as he went to worship, and he realized who God really was and is, brought <clears throat> excuse me, the prosperity of the wicked into a right focus. It had caused him to view life from an eternal perspective and not a temporal perspective. Worship also gave him a new perspective on himself. Underlying his protests in verses 1 to 14 was a faulty assumption that while the wealthy are wicked, he was righteous. But only someone who thought of himself as righteous could reason as he expressed in verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. But worship had caused him to realize that outside of God he wasn't righteous. That he was a sinner just like the wicked. His problem was only different in degrees from that of the wicked. At worship, he was forced to view himself in comparison to God 
and not in comparison to the wicked people around him. Finally, he honestly admitted that he too was a sinner. True worship forces us to look at ourselves as God sees us, not as we see ourselves and not as we compare ourselves with others. Asher originally assumed that the affliction he was facing was inappropriate. It was inappropriate because he was righteous. He believed that adversity was evil, much like Job's three friends. But when he worshipped God, he came to the understanding that the blessing he had received, he came to an understanding of the blessings that he had received by his adversity. At the same time, he was able to see that the affluence that the affluent had been detrimental to the wicked. That affluence, I'm sorry, affluence had been detrimental to the wicked. Prosperity had made the wicked even more greedy, violent, and oppressive. They'd become proud even to the point of blaspheming God. Rather than bringing men closer to God, affluence made these men more independent and more ungrateful. Prosperity had led them to spiritual complacency, and even to blasphemous pride. Asher's affliction, as well as ours, might be unpleasant at times, but God is using it. God is using it to mold us in the shape of his son. God is using it for great beneficial effects to draw us closer to him. Verse 23, Asher says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 24, he says, you guide me with your counsel. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Finally, rather than dwelling on material things, now he delights in the greatest blessing of all, of having the God of the universe Hold his right hand, having the God of the universe as his intimate counselor, having the God of the universe present as a source of comfort and security, and having a promise that he'd always be there. His sufferings were not God's hand of judgment, as he had too hastily concluded, but they were God's loving hand in a course in God's school of suffering. The faithfulness of God amid present trials is evidence of God's faithfulness in the future. Paul writes to the church at Rome in chapter 5, starting in verse 3, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. A hope that assures us that we have the Spirit of God in us through everything that we go through. This is why Asher was now able to say with confidence that all those sufferings may be his portion in life, his flesh and my heart, or my heart, excuse me, my flesh and my heart may fail. 
Nevertheless, God will be sufficient for every need. God was present, and God would be present. God is his refuge and strength, a very help in present trouble. Worship reminded Ashva, and it should remind us, that God is always there. God has never missed a single promise that he's made, and he never will. God will keep the promises that he has, even though we may be suffering, even though we may be going through a trial that we can't endure under. He has promised that he will be with us at all times. And finally, in verse 27 and 28, he concludes by summarizing the peril of the wicked and the blessings of the righteousness. Verse 27, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell others of all your works. The wicked, those who are not near God, will ultimately perish, the same as the wicked today. No matter how comfortable they seem to be, destruction is their final destiny. The God who is good to Israel, to those who is pure in heart, is also the God who will destroy those who are unfaithful to him. Their momentary ease of life was no longer the object of Ashva's envy, and it should not be the object of our envy. Their final destiny should be a sobering reality to all of us. God is our refuge, and we must publicly praise him for his wondrous deeds, which may include adversity in our lives, and which will include suffering in our lives. Asher's thinking was radically changed. He had, begun, he had begun by complaining about the wicked. But once he worshipped, but once he worshipped, he realized the ultimate good in life is knowing God and living for God. And if knowing God is the highest good in this life and in eternity, then we must conclude that whatever draws us away from him is evil, and whatever draws us close to him is good and a blessing and never to be shunned. Anyone who wishes to think that God's people have the right to expect a trouble-free life ease and pros- of ease and prosperity apparently reads the scriptures in a very, very superficial way and has never taken the time to dive deep and get an adequate grasp of what God's word actually says. That we on this earth, as God is sanctifying us, is progressively molding us into the image of the Son with everything he takes us through. In worship, we should gain a right perspective about ourselves, about others, and about God. We have to stop focusing on the present and focusing on the eternal. Passing pleasures of the wicked should not ever be any ultimate goal for us in this life. We are not righteous compared to the wicked. We're sinners, not deserving God's gifts, but only God's grace. Only by God's grace do we have his gifts. We must realize that our fellowship with God is not inconsistent with adversity, but ultimately will be the result. Adversity will be the result. We must appreciate sufferings as a gracious gift of God, 
Say that again. We must appreciate our sufferings as a gracious gift of God. Worship is just not important because it delights the heart of God. Worship is vital because it renews our perspective and enables us to live in a world of suffering, praising God, obeying his word, and looking ahead to the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God is good. God is faithful all the time. Life on earth is fleeting. James calls it a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. We should praise God for all that he is and for all that he does, even when he brings suffering into our lives.